Welcome to Compass Teachers Show. I'm your host, Tiffin. My job is to interview teachers around the world and tease out their teaching tactics, education research, or tools they use. Hopefully, this show can offer some ideas for you to experiment in your classroom. <coughs> this episode is all about cultivating our young readers. I'm really happy today to have Eliza Guerrero joining me, who is a well-known expert in early childhood development. Eliza Guerrero is the founder and teacher at Collegio Philadelphia. It's a school for pre-K to nine. Her school model has been replicating in eleven campuses in five Latin American countries. She was one of the top fifteen finalists for the Global Teacher Prize in both 2015 and 2016. This award has been called the Nobel Prize for Teaching. Eliza has authored many great books for teaching. For example, Learning to Read at Three Domain Method Applied in Preschool Classroom. This book has been consistently first place on sales in Amazon Mexico. The most recent book of hers is Hope, Where Are You? Is the Story of six children around the world who are experiencing school closures because of the pandemic. Now let's enjoy our conversation with Eliza. Hello, Eliza. Welcome to our show. Hi, Tiffany. Thank you so much for having me. I'm pleased to be here with you. So I learned that Eliza, you initially wanted to become a writer, but now you ended up becoming a amazing teacher. So. I'm curious about, especially in teaching reading for early childhood, what drove you to have this change? Okay, I will try to make the story short because it's very long story. I I began uh, uh, my college education、uh, in literature, Hispanic literature, because I wanted to become a writer. Anyway, I had to leave college because there was some、um, economic distress in my family, so I began to work. Then I got married. Then I became a mom, and I was never able to to go back to college at all.、Um, eventually, I got my degree in another way, but、um, that's not the story that we're covering right now. So、uh, when I became a mom, I began to teach my children. I found a book that is called "How to Teach Your Baby to Read" by Glenn Doman. And of course, the title is intriguing, and I give you that it's、uh, a little controversial. But、uh, my curiosity was stimulated. I read the book. I liked very much. It resonated with me. It sounded very logic, and、uh, I decided to give it a try. So I began、uh, teaching my my ten one year old baby boy at home.、Uh, by the time、uh, my second daughter was born. I was already teaching him not only reading but also art and music and foreign languages, and we were having a great time. We were enjoying it so much. It became kind of a natural way for us to 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 relate and to just to live. So when when my second daughter was born, I began doing it with her as well. Um, and then it was time for my for my firstborn to go to school. Well, actually, to preschool,、uh, kindergarten when he was four.、Uh, I kept him at home, but he wanted to go to school anyway. I ended up sending him to regular 
kindergarten here in my hometown of Aguascalientes, Mexico. And, um, you know, the school was beautiful. The teachers were warm and caring and everything was very nice, except for the, the programs. I thought that the expectations for the children were too little. Uh, I knew by them about the wonderful protection that every little child has. And I just thought that the school was not really tapping into that potential. So after trying three different schools, I realized that if if I wanted a different kind of school for my kids, I will have to found it myself. Uh, so that's what I did. But I I was not a teacher. I did nothing about education. I had no training. I thought it was going to be so easy because I had been teaching my kids in my own living room for, for quite a, a few years, a couple of years. So I said, okay, it's, it's, it should not be that hard. Oh my, was I wrong? <laughs> uh, I, almost, I almost quit on my very first week. I had all the little kids crying. I, I didn't know how to make them stop. I spent all the time just hugging them and calling them and trying to play with them to distract them from being separated from their moms and everything. I, I did not teach them anything, uh, at least not that I, that I was aware of at that moment. And I felt like a failure. I see. I mean... I just wanted to go back to my own living room with my own kids and forget about this adventure. But um, I had a commitment with these 17 families that trusted me with their children. I had hired two teachers to help. I had a, a contract, a lease contract for, for the house where we were, um, where we established the school. So I was kind of trapped uh, but I decided to honor the commitment that I made for one year. And I told myself, okay, you're going to do this for one year. And after one year, you can go back uh, to your home, to your living room, to your kids and forget about this. And uh, well, that was a long time ago. I just, um, last year, I just turned 20 in my teaching career. Wow. So after so many years, I'm still here. So I became a teacher kind of by accident. Later on, I got my degree. Later on, I got trained. Mm -hmm. uh, I did it the other way around. Yeah, but that's amazing. It's mm -hmm. been quite a journey. A very yeah. enjoyable journey. <laughs> so uh, before we introduce the Philadelphia method that you advocate a lot in these years, I wonder how, in your opinion, what makes a good reader? What are the good reading habits? Well, um, you know, I think that a good reader is someone who can read well and who derives pleasure from reading and who can actually learn from what he or she reads. And, and if you think about this, a lot of people can read but they are not really readers. And it has to do a lot with comprehension. It has to do a lot with enjoyment. It has to do a lot with being able to learn by yourself using, using books. Uh, if you want to be a lifelong learner, you need to be a lifelong reader. And the, the sad thing is that I don't think that is what is happening. 
you know that right now around the world, there is this term, the learning crisis. Um, I'm sure you are familiar with it. It's a term that was coined by the World Bank and other organizations as well have um, taken that, that, that term. And it means that uh, now more than ever, there are more kids in schools, in classrooms, but they are not learning what they could be learning. For example, just just uh, thinking about Latin America, they were, where I come from, uh, according to PISA uh, from the OECD, the last uh, results that were published in December, just in the uh, before the pandemic got got us turned off our feet, um, half of fifteen year old uh, students in Latin America cannot read to a basic level, cannot get the main idea from a text. I don't think that's okay. I think that's a tragedy. One is too many. Half of them is disaster. So that's that's something that drives me a lot. What can we do about this learning crisis? So from one of your articles, you say most schools use a phonetic method for the acquisition of reading practically guarantees that the child will learn to read even when the result is a slow mechanical reading. It is efficient given the large number of people who read without understanding. So you introduce the Philadelphia method. Would you mind telling us what is the Philadelphia method and how does it differ from the traditional way? Thank you, uh, Tiffen. Yes, well, actually, the term Philadelphia method, it's it's colloquial. It's not really the name for, for what we are doing. Um, I just took the methodology by Glenn Doman that I that I had applied with my own kids at home. That's the way I, I taught them to read and uh, began applying it to school. Uh, now, the school is a very different setting if you compare it to home. Of course, you have much more children. Of course, they are not your kids. You don't know them as well as their mother does. They don't trust you as much as they trust their own moms. Uh, it's it's very different. So I had to do some tweaks to be able to present the methodology in, in a classroom. But the philosophy is the same and the techniques are quite the same. They are the, just small tweaks to be able to present to a larger number of kids. Um, but basically what we do is we teach the whole words to, to the kids. Now, you may say this is whole language. And in a way, it is. But uh, I think that the main difference with the, the, the whole language approach is that we do it very early. When kids are very, very young, and I am talking at three or even younger, they can absorb uh, reading words very easily, as long as the words are contextual. We present them words that they already know from their own context. We present them words that they can like. We present uh, words that are highly significant uh, for them. Um, and because we do that in, a, in an orderly fashion with a specific uh, duration, intensity, and frequency, it is very easy for them. Reading is language. Reading is not a school subject. It is language and it is a brain function just like talking or walking of course it has its differences but it is a brain function and i think that the mainstream way in which we teach our kids to read and write has 
change very little in several centuries. Maybe it's the only teaching practice that remains almost unchanged as time goes by, or maybe it's the one that has changed the least. Um, the, the problem with phonics, and I have nothing against using phonics in to some context, but the main problem is that it tears language apart. It devoids it of a significance, of meaning for, for kids. Because letters and sounds have no meaning by themselves. But a word can have lots of, of meaning, of different meanings for, for children. So, of course, I mean, it, it will be very difficult to, to over the, the course of this program, to, to do exactly as, to teach exactly how we do it. And, of course, it's just sound. We, we have no way to, to show in a video or something how we work with the materials and everything. But the main thing is that we start early. We start with whole uh, words that are, uh, they have meaning for the children. We do it with a high frequency, short duration, a high intensity. Uh, and we organize the reading program with words that are that come together because they relate to each other. So, for example, we can present a category of animals, another set of words that are color words, another set of words that are toys. So it's always about meaning, which is, I think, what, what is lacking a lot, reading comprehension um, in, in, in today's schools. How does this method will more align with brain function? Is it because it gives you more relevant contents around the words and the meaning so that the student can or the kids can absorb more um, efficiently? You know, reading is language. Language is a brain function. Brains are primed for language. You can see the very young kids learn to speak uh, very quickly. Uh, with uh, when when they have of course opportunity to be in touch with people that are constantly talking to them in context, uh, it's not just that you sit the kid in front of the TV, for example, and and they hear the the climate man, the climate or the news uh, person or whatever. It's actually engaging with children in conversations that promotes strong language skills. Now, when we talk to children. We usually, when they are very little, we usually adjust the way we talk to them. We, you don't talk to a child the same way that you talk to an adult. For example, if you have a young child, let's say you have a two-year-old, you can say, hey, what do you want for breakfast? Are you hungry? Do you want scrambled eggs? Do you want orange juice? So you exaggerate your your tone. You, you sing when you talk almost. And, and we do so because we don't, we don't do it in a conscious way, but um, the sensory pathways to a child's brain are immature when they are little. And uh, if, we, if we speak in a higher pitch with more volume, with more intonation, the message gets across easily to, to the child's brain. But the same does not happen with reading. Reading, you see, the words are very small, they look very much alike. They are encased in, in books. The print is very small. So they are not as accessible as, as they are. 
I I know in my heart, I have no way to prove this, but I know in my heart that if children were to be uh, exposed to written language in the same fashion as they are exposed to oral language, they will learn to read and talk at the same time with no effort. Let's let's just pretend or imagine that the mom has a special helmet uh, with um, with neon a neon sign over there, and everything that comes out of her mouth gets printed in there. So whenever she says good morning, you will see this uh, in the helmet uh, the words good morning in neon. Uh, I guarantee, I could guarantee, I cannot prove it, but I think that kids will learn to read at the same time as they learn to, to, to speak. The only difference is the same brain, of course, different pathways, but it's the same brain. The only difference is how we get the message to that brain with how, how much frequency, how much duration, uh, how the, me- the message gets through. And, and you know, now that you're talking about um, brain, the brain, I've been working with the, with these institutes, the institutes that Glenn Doman created as a volunteer for quite some time. Uh, I think maybe 12, eight, no, 18 years or so. And, um, you know, they began the reading program that, that we now use with brain-injured children. And uh, it proved to be successful with kids that had all sorts of... Uh, special needs, um, autistic, Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, because these kids are bright. They just have a difficulty showing us how bright they are. They, they, there is, there is um, an, an obstacle uh, for them, which is the, the deficiency that they could have in, 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 for communication, for example, or, or whatever that problem that may have. But they are very, very bright and um, if if these programs could be grasped by kids we were having difficulties, wouldn't you wonder what will happen if we use the same methodologies with kids that were not showing any difficulties, at least not yet? And uh, there, we can have very early readers. And early readers come also uh, among the population of, of our special kids, the kids that their moms teach at home. They do the program with them at home. And it's not just a reading program. It's a program that encompasses also nutrition and physical movement and other programs that can promote brain development. That's wonderful. So, Eliza, you bring up three, I think there are three key points around this method. It's a whole word. It's high frequency, high intensity. So I want to get deeper around the more concrete samples. Would you mind giving us like one or two activities that you use in your classroom? Well, um, let's say that you have a a three-year-old uh, group, a group of three-year-olds. And um, what we could do if you wanted to do, to try an early reading program with them is that uh, you choose words that you know they know, uh, especially if, if there are words that they love. Of course, you can put their new vocabulary, but in the context, for example, you can go outside to the playground and just write the names of the things that you see. 
uh, things that you could find around the home, things that you can find around the school, the names of their classmates, the names of the family members, uh, animals, colors, there the list can be huge. And uh, the important thing here is that all of these are words that the kids can relate to. And um, you make a category and the category comprises five words, five words, for example, five colors or uh, names of animals. It will be dog, cat, rabbit, horse, um, I don't know, hen, let's say, or rooster. Now, you prepare your materials. You will need large cardboard cards. Um, we do our, uh, in the school, because the kids are already three or four or five, we don't do as big cards as we do with babies, but it's always uh, best to be on the safe side. So you can have, uh, I'm, I'm thinking on inches now, but I think I'm just going to say centimeters because it's easier for me. Our cards, our beginner cards, are uh, 10 centimeters uh, tall by 60 centimeters wide. They can be up to six to 15 centimeters high. And with a fat breath marker, we, we make the words there. So we make the, the word dog, cat, horse, rabbit, pig. And um, in the back of the card, you write the word again. This is for you. So you can see what word you have, what card you have in your hands. You put the five words together and you just um, approach the children and you say, hey, I have here some words for animals. You can read them with me. This is dog, cat, rabbit, rooster, pig. Yay! Wonderful. And of course, as I was saying this, you will be showing the cards. So as you could hear, it is very fast. It's not like the kids have to stare at the words for half a minute or something to really learn the word or anything. It's just very, very, very quick. And we have only five words, so we are done in five seconds or, or less. And... Uh, you do the same thing three times a day with the same category of words. You just make sure that the shuffle occurs so you will not show them always in the same order. Um, and that's it. You don't test the kids. You don't ask them to write the word. You don't ask them to read the word out loud for you. You're just giving them information. And they, by themselves, very soon will begin to... Read the words before you show them, for example. You do this for one week, and then you change your words. And of course, this is just one, one set of words, but usually we have between three to five sets of words for every week. And every week we change our, our words. And of course, reading is not just words. This is the beginning. Uh, later on, we present couplets, like, for example, um, I don't know, um, pink pig, big cat, pretty dog, that kind of things. And later on, we begin with phrases and then with uh, little books, little homemade books or school-made books that um, present the words that the kids have learned in a wider context. So it's, it's basically a giving the kids a meaning for, for reading. Reading should never be an exercise. And uh, by the way, 
we don't think that kids should learn to read and write at the same time when they are so little. We usually, with our two, three-year-olds, we do just a reading program and we begin to teach them to write when they are four or five, but not, not at the same time as we started the reading program. about so Eliza you mentioned about putting the words in a car so how did you uh, connect the meaning to the words do you have a pictures in each car or how do you ex- explain to the kids the meaning behind the word that's a wonderful question Tiffany actually we don't we don't put words in the same cards as some flashcards that you can find in in commercial markets no, we don't do that because if you put the image there, you know, we tend to go to the most, um, uh, the, the brain likes novelty and the words are just playing combinations of letters. So if you have an image there, the image will be much more interesting for the child and he will not really pay attention to the word. So we never show images and words together at the same time. That's why we were saying that it's so important for the kids to know the words that you're going to teach them. These are words that they already know. and These are not new words. Now, you can introduce new words. And when you do that, yes, you may need an image. If, if better, of course, if you have the actual thing close to you. So, for example, you will expect that every child will know what a spoon is because they have been eating from a spoon since they were very little. But let's say that you have uh, something different that you want to introduce. Let's say that you want to say, I don't know, well, cup is also very well known. Well, let's say uh, whatever, whatever word, pen, for example, whatever word. And if for some reason the child did not know what a pen was or, or, or whatever word you're showing, you can actually just grab a pen and show pen and then uh, the, the reading word. But also you can use other cards. Some, some things are not easy to, to show. You, you don't have a lion in your backyard, for example, to just, okay, that's the lion over there. Um, you can create cards with images, uh, but we show them in a separate session. We don't show them at the same time as we show the, the, uh, the reading words. And by the way, this is also the way we teach uh, foreign languages as well. Because the child may very well know what a spoon is in English or in Spanish, cuchara. But if you are trying to teach them uh, another language, uh, of course, they don't know what what spoon is in another language. So that's why we use also the cards. And the cards, uh, we show them in the same fashion. Very quick, three times a day for one week or a little bit more. Uh, very joyously, very short sessions. We don't push or pressure the kids. We don't test them. We just give them information freely, uh, no obligation, just as you will feed your, your baby. When, when you feed your, your little baby, you are not expecting the baby to prove to you that he's using that delicious um, apple that you are giving him or banana or whatever you are feeding him with. You are not expecting him to to prove you that he's 
you know, having all these nutrients into his body and that he's making all the, the gains in, in his weight and, and size, you just assume that nature will, will take care of that and you just present uh, the nutritious food uh, as much as, as you can. You, you choose the best fruits, the best vegetables. You cook them to the right point to, to, to preserve all the nutrients. Well, why don't we do the same with the intellectual nutrients? Uh, breathing is, is such a thing. That's really, really a great tip. So I know that, Eliza, you mentioned really earlier um, one of the good reading habits, the enjoy enjoyment in the reading. So is there any tips you can give to help teachers motivating kids to love reading intrinsically? Well, yes, I think that um, sometimes we don't enjoy reading because we are not comprehending what we are reading. And um, sometimes it's because the print is too small. We can just enlarge the printing. Right now, we have lots of things digitally, and it's easy in screens to just blow the, the print up because some kids do not have a good... Uh, convergence of vision and that makes it uh, difficult for them to read and and that's a whole other thing that we could talk about you know how to create convergence of vision and why is it important and uh, why your kids need to move and creep and crawl and jump and run and do many other things and how we can oxygenate their brain but that's a whole other thing anyway so we can make the print larger some kids need it they will become uh, easy readers if you, we just take care of that while they are developing their convergence of vision. Um, also, sometimes uh, comprehension is still at stake because we, we, there are lots of words in there that the kids don't know. So you could scroll the text, find the words that you think that the kids are going to have a hard time with. You can create reading cards beforehand and you can teach both the meaning and the word before you end, you, you, you end up in a particular text. Of course, this takes a preparation, but it's worthwhile. It's really, really worthwhile. And of course, many, many of the things that we already know and we already do a lot in our classrooms, uh, we give kids choices, we find interesting materials. You know, Tiffany, you and I, we read as many people read, most people read, because you want information, you need information, or because you like to read. You, you, you want either pleasure or information, or both. We don't read because we want to exercise the reading. I don't know about you, but I never said, okay, I need to exercise my reading. I'm going to read 10 minutes today. I, I, I open a book because I want to... I want to learn something or because I am hooked with the book. I, I want the pleasure of, of being told that story that I was reading. It is so interesting. And um, we, we, should, we should not expect differently from the kids. So we need to choose materials that are informative and pleasurable and um, both if, if possible. But if not, at least, at least one that gives new information, interesting information, then it is a pleasure to read. That's really great. So then I think our audience can definitely choose one of your books or only your books for the kids. 
So I think it's a good segue to talk about your new books around the world. These are for early reading and global citizenship, congruent with the Philadelphia method. So Eliza, what is your inspiration behind this book around the world? Well, um, it's actually a series of of books, uh, and they are aimed for three, four, and five year olds at our, our school in Mexico. That's uh, our preschool uh, kids, first grade of kindergarten, second grade of kindergarten, and third grade of kindergarten. It's how we it's how we do it in in Latin America. So uh, it's three, four, and five year olds before the start of uh, elementary school. So uh, the the books they they present a different country every month. Or I, I mean, you should. The, the the thing is that we we are um, advising to use one book every month. So one every month you will travel to a different country, and the books are very very short. They have the the words separated from the images uh, for the reason that we that we said before. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have some words that you're going to find inside the book. That's how the, every book begins with five words that, that you're going to find inside of the book. And then uh, those books are, are highlighted somehow, uh, are in bold. So you can find those, bo- those words by yourself in the book. And it's meant for someone to read the book to you with enough frequency that uh, soon, without even noticing, you can start to read those books by yourself. So the print is very large, not very, not a lot of words per page, um, interesting information, joyful, hopefully joyful information. Um, and at the same time, the kids are learning to read and developing global citizenship because they are learning about different cultures around the world. Of course, this is not all that it is about global citizenship, but this is kind of a good first step to take. Of course, there's lots more to to do about global citizenship. Last few questions I have for you, Eliza. Any books come to your mind that influence your thinking a lot in the past few years? Well, I will say that the the book that changed my life uh, and made me become a professional mother and then a teacher was How to Teach a Baby to Read by Glendomen. Uh, I read that book a long time ago, of course, to teach my own children first. And there are many, many other books by Glenn Doman that I also found uh, very, very interesting. And, and as I say, they, they changed my life both uh, personally and, and professionally. And uh, other books, well, I, I love books. Uh, I read a lot. Just this morning, I finished and I liked it very much. Sapiens. I, I'm sure you're familiar oh, with the book. I love that too. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm. I'm so happy. Uh, so this is a, a book by Yuval Noah Harari, and uh, I also read the earlier this year by Steven Pinker, Enlightenment Now, which I also think it's a very, very nice mm-hmm. book. And I love poetry. I love poetry by Octavio Paz, who is a Nobel Prize winner uh, from Mexico. Um, Gabriel Said is also another one of my favorite um, uh, authors. Uh, so I, I like to read poetry, but also at books in education. There is another very good book that was published, uh, I think it was last year, uh, Teaching Life or Calling or Choices or Challenges by Armand Doucette 
who happens to be my co-author for for another two books, um, Teaching in the Fourth Industrial Revolution and uh, Hope, Where Are You?, which is a children's book. So anyway, um, I, I just finished Sapiens today, so I think I will go with Sapiens. <laughs> that's a, that's a really good uh, list. I will make sure they are all put into our show notes so our listeners can go and check them out. And before we close up, Eliza, do you have any other thoughts, programs, or workshops you want to share with our listeners? I just, I just would like to remind something that teachers and mothers have known for a long time, which is that every child bears the seed of genius within, and that it is our responsibility as educators to provide uh, that seed with the very best warm, caring, enriched, stimulating learning environment for that seed to be able to grow and reach its fullest potential. That's really, really great. So if people want to learn more about your work, how they can find you online? Well, I am on social media and Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook is um, Elisa Guerra Cruz, which I know may be difficult to spell. But maybe you can put it in your notes. It's just just my my name with my two last names all together, and and that's my handle for Instagram, Facebook, and and Twitter. Um, so I think that's it. Uh, I I also have an email that is uh, contacto at elisaguerra.org if you if you prefer to do it by email. Thank you for listening. We will put the things mentioned in the interview to the show notes. If you enjoy our show, welcome to share and don't forget to subscribe. Thank you.